Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK, brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamelski talk with Jeffrey Post, Research Associate and Curator Emeritus at the National Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. Hey everyone, welcome to The Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from Los Angeles, and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from New York City. Hi, Rob. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm kind of refreshed. I just spent a few days in the Eastern Sierras, uh, which are a really beautiful part of California that runs up the middle of the state closer to the border of of Nevada. A lot of people have heard of Mammoth, which is a really popular skiing destination, and it's just north of there. Uh, We go camping every year to June Lake, and there's an amazing gold mining town that's now a state park. It's a ghost town, but it's, it's been a state park for many years, and we have friends who run a hotel that was founded in the town of Bodie when it was a gold mining town in the late 1800s, and then the hotel was moved on logs, pulled by horses, in around 1920 to the town of Bridgeport, about 20 miles north. And our friends bought this kooky, amazing hotel about a year and a half ago, and we stayed there. So it was really cool to have both a camping experience and this really historic hotel that was founded in this old gold mining town. And we visited Bodie last summer when we went up there, and it's wild. You know, there were like saloons and numerous hotels and a church and a school and the whole thing. And it all lasted for about 20 or 25 years until the mine went, you know, it was tapped. And so that was an experience. So that was that was my few days. Um, it was, was it haunted? Well, the hotel is supposedly haunted, actually. Um, yeah. And in fact, we'd stayed there a year ago when they were just renovating. They just purchased it from the woman who was something of a legend in this little town who'd owned it for years and years and years. But it was like she was almost kind of a hoarder. She'd collected all this old vintage furniture and they had to do a lot of vetting and cleaning and reupholstering. But um, right as we were staying there, right before they reopened as new owners last summer, a ghost hunting crew from YouTube showed up. and did a whole episode that happened to premiere on YouTube the weekend that we were staying with them. And, you know, of course, they went all in on the ghost stories and freaked out and ran out in the middle of the night because they were too scared. But staying there, we didn't have any, we didn't come across any ghosts. So They they ran out in the middle of the night for real or? For real, this YouTube crew literally was like, we're so scared we have to leave. And so they they left. They weren't weren't faking it? They really thought they were ghosts? How do I know? I mean, it could have all been for the cameras, but they actually did leave. So weird. (laughs) I know. And apparently there is one of the rooms and our friend Jeff, who's one half of the couple that's our friends that own this, did show us one of the back rooms that like literally somebody just the other night was staying there and saying, I'm hearing a wild animal, you know, in the roof here and there's some crazy scratching going on. Can you help? And he's like, "Uh, I was just in the attic. There are no animals here, I promise you. So they do think that there is some level of haunting going on, but it's mostly just kind of a charming backstory to this really old hotel that sprung up in the midst of a gold mining boom in this part of California that's really close to Nevada. It was really fun and it's always fun. You know, I don't, have you ever been to a ghost town or any sort no no but you convinced me i'm i'm going i mean it's amazing right for kids uh, yeah sure i should say speaking of jeff our guest is the third jeffrey in a row on this podcast so the <laughs> other ones were jeff 
Furry, and he's Jeffrey, and uh, I think we should get a Geoffrey, oh. one of the Geoffrey people. <laughs> there are Ge- Well, so you've, you've sort of preempted me here. I was just about to introduce our wonderful guest who is a legend among gem nerds especially. He, for 32 years, held the position of curator in charge of gems and minerals at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History. Now, he recently retired in May, but is still a research associate and curator emeritus at the Smithsonian. And of course, as you said, his name is Jeffrey. Free post. So welcome, Jeff. Thank you for being our third Jeff in a row. Well, I didn't realize that I was going to be holding up such a string. Now I know why you invited me. You just needed another Jeff. Okay. I think we're going to keep going with this. Our next one might have to be the G-O-F. Geoffrey's. It's a weird thing. It's not something we planned. Trust me. I like it. It's been a good Jeffrey period. So Well, hopefully that'll continue. Well, so Welcome, Jeff. It's so I I don't think until Rob mentioned that I'd noticed you'd retired after this illustrious three decade plus career in one of the most hallowed institutions of our nation. So we usually start with how do you get to your current position? So we will get to your background. But how has it been to be retired for the last couple of months? Well, I think my wife will attest to the fact that it really hasn't felt all that different yet. We've done a little bit of traveling, which we often do in the summer, visiting family. And so that just felt pretty normal. And I've still got a lot of projects that I'm winding up at the museum, cleaning out an office with 40 years worth of accumulation of materials so that I can move to a different office. All of that has uh, been part of the transition. So I would have to say I'm still in that transition into retirement, and I'm hoping it'll start to feel more like retirement. The best part is that uh, I'm already starting to think more about the fun parts of the job that I like to do. And uh, as I get these emails that have to do with the administrative things, it's just lovely to say, not my problem. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the best part for sure. Absolutely. Wow. Well, we'll get to, and also I, I realize we will want to hear about your successor, but let's let's go back to the beginning. Tell us how you got here. Tell us about what how you got into mineralogy in the first place. Well, you know... I, I'm one of these people that, as long as I can remember, I had a fascination for rocks and minerals and chemistry and things like that. I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin. My mom said I would always come home, even as a kid, with my pockets stuffed full of uh, rocks that I picked up during the day. And then I have to say, I had a fourth grade teacher that um, brought in this amazing quartz crystal one day during science class and passed it around. And she'd gotten it from a local rock shop owner. And when you held, you know, held this thing in your hand, she's telling you it came out of the earth that way. That was one of these sort of transformational moments, just going, no way could something like that form in the earth. And it just uh, cemented my interest in science, I guess. And so just went on from there and sort of followed the, I guess, traditional academic path, you know, went into graduate school thinking I would wanted to study minerals and uh, didn't quite know exactly how that would end up, but assumed I would probably be at a university teaching, be a professor or something like that. And then lo and behold, um, as I was looking for jobs and uh, you know applying for anything that looked interesting, there was an advertisement that came out for a research mineralogist at the Smithsonian's Museum of Natural History. And that was just something I never had thought about, but sounded very intriguing. And I applied and lo and behold, it uh, I got offered the job there and went to work, not quite knowing exactly what that was going to mean, but realizing it was something really special and fabulous collection in a fascinating place in an institution with a great legacy. Never have looked back since. It's just been one of those pinch me moments where you go, wow, what an amazing opportunity. Wow. What a career. Amazing. When you were, what exactly as a child attracted you to rocks? 
you know, growing up in a small town, you know, it was those that period of time when, you know, as a young kid, you just wandered the hillsides, right? We lived on the edge of town and, you know, there were some a couple little quarries in the area. It was an area that you could collect fossils uh, not far from the mining district in the southern part of Wisconsin. And I had some neighbors and my father actually was quite interested in, or at least willing to humor me in terms of my interest in rocks and minerals. And so we would go out and pick things up and the pile in the basement got bigger and bigger. And uh, at that time, there were more than I think today, local rock shops around. There was one in a town nearby that, uh, you know, had a little rock club that was part of that. And uh, they were very welcoming and encouraging. And it was a time when you could sort of follow your head in, in terms of what you were interested in. And fortunately, I had a lot of encouragement. So I was, you know, lucky that, you know, it was something that others also found interesting and were willing to uh, to share my enthusiasm. And when, when you got to the Smithsonian, so that was what, 32 years ago? What is that? Well, I got to the Smithsonian in 1984. First several years, worked there as a research curator. And then in 1991 or so is when I took over as curator of the John Mineral Collection. Got it. So when you were there in 1984, when you first arrived, was it, you know, were people flocking to it? What were the main exhibits there? And was it as popular a place as it is today? Well, it was certainly a very popular place. And it was part of, to me, part of the fascination. You know, I remember the first day walking, you know, down the mall and then into this incredible building thinking, I work here, you know. And during the day, it fills up with visitors. It did then, it does so even more so now. And, you know, it uh, has been a very popular place for a long time. And certainly for me, that was part of the fascination. I remember when I was thinking about, do I want to work at the Smithsonian? Because I did actually have a couple job offers at universities at the time. And you know, I knew I liked the idea of teaching, of mentoring. And so I remember saying that to some of the people at the Smithsonian. Well, you know, that I was torn, not, you know, giving up a teaching job at, the, at university to come to the Smithsonian. And they kind of looked at me and said, hey, we've got, you know, 10,000 people a day that come through these exhibits. What better place to teach? And I have to say that was uh, part of what convinced me this was be a, the place I wanted to go. What's interesting is today, if you want to look at a picture of the Hope Diamond, you can easily Google it right. and see the Hope Diamond where you couldn't do that when we were all kids. Yet people still want to go and see these things in person. What's the appeal to that? It's an interesting thing, Rob. Um, museums in general, and certainly the Smithsonian, has never been busier. And I think part of that is just people are traveling more and people are just learning about things on social media, whatever, and all that. But I do think that there is still, and even more than ever, perhaps, this desire, this emotional need to see things, to see the real things. And, you know, I, I kind of laugh sometimes as I walk through our exhibits with people. And I say, well, one of the things our exhibit does is it puts the third dimension back into people's life again. You know, we're so used to seeing these pictures, as you mentioned, on our phones or, you know, on a computer screen or wherever. And so we've sort of lived this life of, of images. And so when you walk into an exhibit, for example, our gem exhibit, Stand in Front of the Hope Diamond, I think all of us are still pretty excited to be able to say, you know, hey, I'm actually seeing the real thing. And I think it does make an emotional connection. You know, there's this sort of sense of awe that we have that when we feel the real thing, that we just don't feel when you're looking at a picture of it. You know, it's like if you've been to the Louvre in Paris, you stand in front of the Mona Lisa, it's a different feeling than looking at that picture on your phone. And I think that seeing the Hope Diamond in person, seeing many of our other gems, seeing especially the minerals, the crystals, which were in many cases totally a surprise to our visitors because they've just never seen anything like that. And, you know, realizing you can walk around them, that they're three-dimensional, that they're real things that formed in the earth. 
And I think it's a bit of a magical moment for people. And I think that people are still want that sense of experiencing something that is real. I mean, everybody, when they walk in, the first thing they'll say to our security people is, is that really the Hope Diamond there? And of course, the answer is yes, of course. We only show the real thing. Oh my God, hilarious. I And this is a very shameful thing to admit. I have never been to the museum. So can you walk us through kind of what a first-time visitor experiences? I mean, we spoke a couple of years ago about American gems, and I remember you mentioning these beautiful crystals you'd gotten, I think, from Arkansas that are towards the entrance. Is that is that right? Absolutely true. Yeah, Victoria, good memory. So first of all, shame on you for not having I know, I know. I but, know. Terrible. But, so the good thing is chances are we're going to be there for a long time. So hopefully <laughs> There'll be some opportunities, yes. but okay. First of all, you know, a lot of our visitors, people come to Washington, D.C., and they say, well, we're going to see the Smithsonian today. It's only then when it dawns on them or they start looking at a map, they realize the Smithsonian has 20 museums and is the zoo and everything else. And so this concept of seeing the Smithsonian a day just goes out the window. <laughs> and many of the museums, most of the large ones, are right down in Washington on the mall. The Natural History Museum, where I've worked all these years, is the largest of the museums. It's the most visited, right smack in the middle of the mall. So for people walking into the museum, they can walk in from the mall side, the south side, or they can walk in from the north side, Constitution Avenue. From the mall side, you'll walk in this big sort of Romanesque building and a big dome, and you walk in that big domed area, the rotunda, and you see this huge stuffed elephant. His name is Henry. And for a lot of people, that's the image they first have of our museum is this big elephant. In fact, the phrase, I'm going to meet you at the elephant is something that's sort of built into the Washington lexicon. And if you come in on the other hand, from the other side, which about half of our visitors do, the Constitution Avenue side, one of the first things now you're going to see just in the last couple of years is this huge 8,000 pound slab of quartz crystals from Arkansas. And they're beautiful, big crystals, some of them almost a foot long. And immediately, I think, puts people into the sense of this museum is a wonderland and right away reminds them. I mean, I love the idea of being a mineralogist and going back to my own you know, early history and thinking about quartz crystal from Arkansas, people seeing this and having it be one of their first experiences in the museum and reminding them the earth is made of minerals. You know, these things form in the earth naturally, they're all magical. So then you walk in and there are all kinds of things to see, but the major attractions, of course, is the Hope Diamond. You know, it's become one of the must-see items in Washington, you know, the Washington Monument, the Capitol, the White House, and the Hope Diamond. And so people will make their way up to the second floor trying to find the Hope Diamond. And in the exhibit that's been there since the late 1990s, the one that I was involved in helping to create, um, the Hope Diamond is right in front. And we realized that if we put it in the back, people say, well, put it in the back because it draws everybody in. Well, the thing we learned was that people just wanted to see the Hope Diamond. They don't want to look at everything else. They wouldn't look at anything else until they saw the Hope Diamond. And then they would relax and go, okay, what else is there to see now? <laughs> and then, you know, after they've spent whatever time they're going to go through the uh, the gem mineral collections and the geology exhibit, and yes, it does become a geology exhibit. Of course, there's other things in the museum to explore. There's a fairly new dinosaur hall that just opened, which is very popular, and a, a mammal hall, and the Hall of the Oceans, and human origins, all the great things that are part of a natural history museum. And as I like to always sort of tease my director a little bit and say, well, it's great you got all these other things because we do want some place for people to go after they've seen the Hope Diamond. I wonder if of all those crystals, orb gems for that matter, if you, if you have a favorite display that's currently up or has been up in the past, is there anything that you think you can't miss this? Oh, Lord, that's that's a really hard one because, okay, there's some great gems and minerals. We just put on exhibit a new 
gemstone that was donated to us and it came it went out in April and it's a one of these beautiful green savorite garnets you know it's over 100 carats it's from uh, Tanzania and was one of these wonderful gifts from a, a group of individuals and it's just a beautiful green stone and most people have never seen anything like it and so I think that that's been a, a really nice addition that people are really enjoying another fairly new addition to the collection just a few years ago is a really gorgeous um, bright red topaz, precious topaz. And it turns out we've got it installed in the same gallery where the Hope Diamond is right now. And they did a beautiful job installing it. And it's called the Whitney Flame, the Flame Topaz. And I'll tell you, you see this stone, it looks like it's on fire. And it's actually given the Hope Diamond a little bit of a run for its money. When people walk into that gallery, it's like, okay, here's the Hope Diamond over here to the left. But what is that bright red stone staring me right in the face? And so it's it's kind of fun to uh, remind people that there are a lot of other spectacular pieces in the collection besides the Hope Diamond. This podcast is brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. The De Beers Institute of Diamonds mission is to grow and strengthen consumer confidence by providing integrity across the natural diamond industry, offering unrivaled diamond grading and testing exclusively for natural untreated diamonds. The De Beers Institute of Diamonds provides diamond tears with confidence in a report of each diamond's four C's. Every diamond graded at De Beers Institute of Diamonds is also given a unique inscription number, allowing the diamond's details to be tracked and viewed on their website. Visit institute.debeers.com to learn more and register for their grading services. Working with all these beautiful objects every day and legendary diamonds like the hope do you ever get jaded (laughs) how do you maintain your enthusiasm for something like this having seen so much you know i can honestly say that i've never felt jaded every day when i went to work for all those years you know in the morning going in i would think you know something really interesting is going to happen today and at the end of the day you'd look back and say wow all these really cool things happened today and in many cases it was seeing a new mineral a new gemstone meeting an individual with a great story or something to show you you know all these things that happen because you're at a place like the smithsonian and so i can't say that you know i've ever been very blasé about somebody putting a gemstone in my hand and saying let me tell you the story behind this or here look at this thing you know it's it's been one of the wonderful parts of the job to just always enjoy seeing these things We've talked about the Hope Diamond a little bit. One of the things it's famous for, in addition to being a beautiful diamond, is its so-called curse. Ah. What do you think of that? Do people believe it? You know, what has your experience with it been? I assume you're not cursed. (laughs) Well, uh, some people might argue there. Some people (laughs) might argue the fact that I was there all those years was in itself a curse. But um, it's inevitably part of the story. And, you know, I think that it has inherited that story for a number of reasons, in part because people just like stories. And, you know, there are a lot of different gems when you look back in novels and books and various other places that have stories like that associated with them. So perhaps, you know, when a diamond like the Hope Diamond becomes fairly famous, it's inevitable that uh, it gets a story like that as well. The curse story is actually a fairly recent addition to its story. I mean, the story of the Hope Diamond goes back to the late 1600s when it came out of India. But the first mention of any kind of a curse being associated with it wasn't until the early 1900s. And actually, it was in a newspaper article in New York. And at that time, the Hope Diamond was owned by a New York firm. There was a bit of a recession going on. Diamonds weren't selling very well. And it seems inevitably that this story came out as a way to get some attention on the diamond and perhaps uh, 
you know, get people interested in, in, in buying it. And then when Pierre Cartier sold it to Evelyn Walsh McLean, he certainly sort of exaggerated, added on a little bit to those stories to help get her interested in it. And she herself liked to tell the stories. And so when Evelyn Walsh McLean owned it, I mean, here's this wealthy woman living in Washington, D.C. And despite her wealth, uh, you know, she had some unfortunate things happen in her life. Her son was killed at an early age in an automobile accident. Her daughter committed suicide. Her husband ended up in an insane asylum. And so for people who like the stories or, you know, believe in curses or want to believe in those things, you know, they can just point to her and say, well, look at all these terrible things that happened to this wealthy woman. You know, that reminds me, Jeff, when we spoke, and this was actually, I guess it was not a couple years ago, maybe it was a year ago. And I actually found the notes I took from that conversation. So I'm just going to read a couple of your quotes, which I found so (laughs) poignant. Uh, I think we were talking about a specific diamond or something. And you said, it underscores one of the fascinating aspects of gemstones. They may be lost, but the nature of gems and particularly diamonds is that they can sit somewhere in a vault for long periods of time and pop out again. And they are as they were. There's a sense of permanence. They're out there forever. And that's part of why we have a fascination with them. They tend to carry stories. It it resonated so much with me because I'm a gem lover and a gem nerd. And I realized that so much of obviously the stones we trade and we talk about and we buy and we sell, you know, it's not just a simple transaction. It always opens the door to so many memories, either personal memories or more legends of the kinds of stones they are. And, uh, you know, I wondered if you could maybe elaborate on that or if there's any stones other than the hope that we've just talked about that you're particularly enchanted by in terms of their stories. Well, yeah, in fact, it certainly is one of the reasons why I think our collection is so fascinating. You know, when you walk around our gem collection gallery and you see the stones and then you look at the labels and read, you know, the stories behind them, you realize that we've become a collection, not just of the gems, but a collection of the stories as well. And in fact, you know, during the pandemic times, you know, anticipating retirement and, you know, the realizing that a lot of these stories just needed to be updated and written down. Um, That became one of my projects to sort of writing these stories down. And it is part of what makes gems, I think, so fascinating to people. I mean, often I'm asked the question, you know, why is it everybody loves gems? And part of is what you had referred to is that we are fascinated, you know, they're beautiful, but also there is this sense of timelessness. I mean, you think of almost anything else that we interact with in our lives and almost nothing else can you look at it and go, well, that'll be here forever. And gemstones sort of fit into that category. Gems are forever in a way. And you put a gem in someone's hands, almost inevitably, the first thing they ask you is, well, where did this come from? Who owned it? What's the story? And I think you know, we've sort of associated that. And those stories get carried along by the gems. And you know, for a lot of the pieces we have in the collection that came in from donors, I'm confident that part of the, the thinking that they had was, here's a way for them to leave a legacy. You know, that gemstone will be in the Smithsonian collection essentially forever. I mean, I anticipate the Smithsonian having a long, long future. And as long as it's there, the gemstone will be there. And I think that's part of what makes gems so interesting is that we're always just part of the story and the story has a history and it has a future to it. And that's sort of like working at the Smithsonian. It's a place that has a history. It has a future. And the gems sort of parallel that. And you told a really cool story about the time the Whittlespock diamond came in. I guess it's now called the Whittlespock graph. And you placed it right next to the hope. Could you talk about that and how it felt? Sure. I mean, one of the great things about 
working at the Smithsonian and with the gem collection is that you know, we have a great collection of objects that you get to study and handle and, and look at each day, but it also becomes a focus for other great gems, either to bring them to the Smithsonian for a special exhibition or to be part of a study. And so when the Wittelsbach diamond, you may remember when that came up, I think it was purchased at auction by Lawrence Graff about in 2008 give or take a little bit. And it's a stone that had been legendary. People had heard about it. We all knew it was this other great blue diamond out there in history, but for decades, no one had seen it. And so suddenly it pops up for auction. Lawrence Graff buys it. Some controversy has a recut to improve the appearance of it, becomes now the Wittelsbach Graff diamond, but it's the other great blue diamond of history, the Hope Diamond and the Wittelsbach Graff. To the point where you look back, there's a sort of parallel of histories where we know the Hope Diamond or the the parent stone of it came out of India in the sort of mid-1600s, became part of the French crown jewels, was recut, and eventually ended up at the Smithsonian. Well, the Wittelsbach Diamond also came out of India about the same time, ended up in Spain as part of the Spanish royalty, then ended up in Bavaria, and then ended up in private hands. So the fact that these two great blue diamonds of history both came out of India about the same time, came to Europe, and had these sort of parallel histories in a way, is just sort of fascinating. You think of how many big blue diamonds do you know that ever came out, and the fact that these two would come out of India about the same time and end up in Europe, just a coincidence or or not? And so there was always some sort of speculation. I mean, could these two blue diamonds be related? Were they cut from the same original bigger parent stone in India? Were they found at the same time? Who knows? But no one had ever had a chance to really answer that question because they were never in one place and you couldn't study them together. And then the Whittles box sort of disappeared. And of course, the Hope Diamond was in Washington on display, but the Whittles box, nowhere to be seen. Well, then it comes up for sale, it gets purchased. And so we approached Lawrence Graff and we said, would you be willing to loan the diamond to the Smithsonian? First of all, we'd love to just show it to the public side by side with the Hope Diamond because there may never be a chance to ever do this again. And we'd love to then have a chance to study them and maybe answer this question. Could these two diamonds be related to each other? And so fortunately he agreed. He was also interested. So he loaned it to us. And once it was in Washington, we then assembled a team of researchers from the Gemological Institute of America, from, of course, the Smithsonian, from some other colleagues that we've been working with on diamonds. And we set up an evening. We said, okay, we're going to study these two diamonds. And of course, both of these, because they were on public exhibit, we couldn't take them off exhibit and do the research during the daytime because we'd have thousands of angry people going, where's the Hope Diamond? Why isn't that on exhibit? And so what we had to do was to plan this for an all-night research program. So, and of course, it had to be done in a very secure place. So we set up all of our instruments that we're going to use in our vault, back in our vault. And we assembled these, the team of scientists. Everybody was there. End of the day, we waited until the museum closed. And so the Wittelsbach diamond was back in the vault. In fact, it was actually before we put it on public display. So we had a chance to have that there. But then I had to go out and get the Hope Diamond. So the museum closed. I went out with our security people. We got the Hope Diamond out of the vault, brought it back. All the scientists were sitting in the conference room waiting because our security people wanted, you know, no one else around when we moved the Hope Diamond. So I was carried the Hope Diamond back into the vault and they left. And there I was standing in the vault with the Hope Diamond. And there in front of me was the Wittelsbach Diamond. I have to admit, I, I took the moment, you know, rather than quickly running out and grabbing all the rest of my colleagues and say, let's start this study I just couldn't help but uh, take those few minutes and look at those two diamonds sitting there side by side and thinking, this is the first time ever these two blue diamonds have been in the same place next to each other. And here I am the first person ever to see these two diamonds together. And then I even indulged myself a little more because, you know, one of the special properties of the Hope Diamond 
is that if you expose it to an ultraviolet light in a dark room and then turn off the light, it phosphoresces this bright orange color. And so one of the first things we wanted to know was, well, does the Wittelsbach do the same thing? If so, hmm, maybe they are. Maybe there is something to this idea they're the same. So again, before I got my colleagues, I put the ultraviolet light on these two diamonds and lo and behold, the Wittelsbach diamond phosphoresced just like the Hope. Mm. And so then you're going, wow, this is pretty cool. So anyway, at that point, I did then go out, grab my colleagues. We all assembled back in the vault and then spent the rest of the night, literally all night, doing every kind of study, taking photographs, all the things that we wanted to do to compare these two blue diamonds. And despite the fact that they looked very similar in color, they both did phosphoresce. There were a number of other tests we did that showed very clearly things like birefringence and other kinds of fluorescence tests and things that showed very conclusively that they could not have originated from the same original diamond, that they had to have formed Ah. separately as two different diamonds. And it was, in fact, just one of these amazing coincidences in history that two of the great blue diamonds we know in the world both came out of India to Europe in about the same period of time in the late 1600s. So it's one of those special Mm -hmm. moments you look back and go, okay, it was a very cool job, cool place to be. And (laughs) yes, you know, it gave me an opportunity to have some experiences that again, I can say only could have happened working as a curator of gems and minerals at the Smithsonian. Wow, what a tale. Well, we're right up on our time. Maybe just a quick word about your successor and any big initiatives or exhibitions that we might look forward to in the near future. Oh, there's always something that's going to happen. And so I will just say, stay tuned. But um, we have two people that have been hired in the last several years um, in the department that will be uh, looking after the gem and mineral collection. Our curator of gems will be as Gabriella Farfan. Interestingly, she, like me, grew up in Wisconsin, in fact, uh, in a town about 20 miles from where I live. So there's something special about Wisconsin producing curators of gems at the Smithsonian. Then my other colleague, Yellen Laskew, um, is taking over as curator of the mineral collection. So the two of them together will carry on this great tradition of gems and minerals at the Smithsonian. They're both incredibly capable, very enthusiastic, bright people. And you know, One of the things that convinced me it was time to retire is knowing that we have great people coming along and you just, you need that new energy, the new creativity. And so I'm excited to see what it is that they're going to be doing with the collection and the exhibition at the Smithsonian. Cool. Well, we'll all have to go. Please do. Yeah. Oh my God. It's on our list. Thank you so much, Jeff. Those stories, we could could listen to you talk about, rhapsodize about gems all day. As you probably learned, I could talk about them all day. Appreciate the opportunity. That was a pleasure. Fantastic. Well, have a wonderful summer and um, thanks again. My pleasure. Rob, Victoria, great to talk to you. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. Any views expressed in this podcast do not reflect the opinion of JCK, its management, or its advertisers. Thanks for listening. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.